Welcome back to Practice Purchased, Season 4, Episode 3. I am joined yet again uh, by one of my favorite guests, uh, Morgan Stump, our banker from Provide. Morgan, hello. Hey, Brian. How are you? Doing fantastic. I'm really excited to talk about this episode. I want to tee this up well. So if you are listening to this episode and uh, the the title didn't necessarily um, get you jazzed or blow your skirt up or whatever it is, we're talking about the debt service coverage ratio today. And that's that's a mouthful. And this is going to be one of those episodes where you're going to want to pay attention. So if you are, uh, if you're a lawn mowing podcast listener, or you're listening to the gym or you're driving and you know where to take notes, uh, don't fear uh, because at in the show notes, there will be a link to a one page PDF, very basic to that talks about the math that we're going to talk about in this episode. Um, so if you, if, as we're talking, if you're like, man, he's talking numerators, denominators, like, what is he talking about? Uh, we've got the, I've got the cheat sheet for you. All right. We've got the notes, but here's why this is important. All right. No one, no one. And I, and I mean this literally dental CPAs don't know this. Attorneys don't generally know this. No one understands this stuff. And it's only after several years of having people like you, Morgan say like, well, the debt service coverage ratio on this deal was XXX, right? And then having me go, what, what does that mean? Um, did I really dig in and understand this? So I'm excited to talk about this with our, our audience. So again, listeners, if you guys um, are listening, this is the episode that's going to answer your question on why one person can say, well, I called Morgan to provide and he gave me a loan. And the next comment on Facebook is going to say, well, I talked to Morgan. He wouldn't give me a loan. Right. And it's not Morgan. And it's not necessarily the dentist and it may not be the dental practice. It's this math. All right. And it's how this math works. So Morgan, I don't know if that tees it up very effectively, but this is uh, one of those things that I just, man, when I learned it, the light bulb went on for me and I wanted to pass that along to the folks that are out there thinking about buying a practice. No, it's a, it's a great lead in. And I think you made debt service coverage ratio about as exciting as and I say that as a numbers nerd. So yes, yep. I'm excited to talk to you. Okay, so Morgan, define the term for me in basic, you know, basic English. What is a debt service service coverage ratio? I can't even say it. Yeah, yeah. let's call it DSCR. Yeah. Uh, it's basically a fancy way to say cash flow. Um, you know, does the practice that you were buying put off enough income to support you and all that you have going on? So basically, all the income flows out of the practice after all of your business overhead and flows into your household. So when you see that income coming in and then you compare it to your expenses, all of your personal overhead that you might have within that house, within your household, uh, does it come in at a positive cash flow ratio um, enough to not only you know break even and keep you afloat in your house, uh, but also provide you with an extra cushion so that you're able to put some money away and build towards your future. Got it. So if I'm buying this practice, can I afford to live? <laughs> yeah. All right. So what's the, what is the go, no go number for this calculation? Sure. So it's pretty uniform across the board with all of us conventional lenders. And that number is 1.25 to one. So the easiest way that I like to think about it is let's say that you've got, if you look at all of your annual expenses, you know, everything that you need to run your lifestyle and that comes to a hundred thousand dollars. Um, and that's taking into account your mortgage payment, your vehicles, your student loans, all of your personal overhead. 
and for the year it's $100,000, um, then you would need to find a practice or a practice opportunity that is putting off at least $125,000 uh, of income and bringing that into your home. So the $125,000 to $100,000, that bakes down to a 1.25 to 1 ratio. Okay. So it's a simple kind of, it's just an equation or a, it's a, uh, it's a numerator and a denominator. And the yes. magic number is 1.25 to 1. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I got it. There is some, there, there's some minutiae I think we're going to get into a little bit later about how we can arrive at that number, but that's okay. kind of the nuts and bolts. Okay. And you said it's pretty consistent bank to bank. Um, and I have found that to be true also. Uh, you said you use the word conventional, which is, uh, yeah, all of the lenders that um, that my clients are talking to, with the exception possibly of SBA lenders, correct? That's exactly it. You basically, got SBA lenders, and you've got uh, and you've got us conventional lenders out there. Okay, perfect. So we got the one, two, five. Um, let, let's handle a little more before we get in deep in the math. How is the number used internally? Who who is actually calculating this number and? I imagine this is internal to the bank. Walk me through a little bit of the, you know, the secret sauce and how the sausage gets made in the back room. Is this ever a situation where you can go and say, well, you know, it's a 1.24, but come on, dude, it's Brian. Like, you know, let's make this work. Like, how does it, how does this work? Who does it? And is there any wiggle room? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, Unfortunately, we can't go and 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 you know say this is a Brian deal or you know so and so is representing this doctor. You know that kind of gets into the fair lending uh, side of things. So, yep. but what we can do is we can look for other strengths. Um, we can look at you know is the borrower very liquid? Do they have high production capabilities? And uh, you know while the calculations are pretty cut and dry, um, there are ways to try to enhance the deal. Um, for example. Um, we're going to, and we've already talked about this in the previous episodes, but if you don't have production reports, um, then mm-hmm. we're usually going to default to giving you $550,000 worth of production, uh, capability. And we understand that if somebody has been out for years and been working, um, they probably are able to produce more than that. Um, so, you know, we'll have them maybe write a letter and kind of, you know, keep track in a, a log, if you will, of their procedures and how busy they are on a daily basis. And then we can take that to the underwriters and basically add, ask for a, a, an exception to go above the $550,000 worth of production. And, you know, if we're to 1.15 or 1.2, you know, boosting the production from 550,000 to 600,000 is usually going to increase the income to the point where it's going to get us over the hump that we need. So we try to use common sense and, uh, you know, if, if the deal makes sense, uh, we've got a strong borrower, a strong practice. Um, but we just need to get the number there. Um, usually there's ways to, to try to make that work if the borrower has a, a strong profile. Okay. So the, I'll put that into my language. You check me if I've got this right. The, there's no wiggle room on the math. The math is the math. And the only wiggle room would be in maybe how you calculate what goes into the formula. So I can't, if I'm a 1.2, the answer is no on a loan, but if, if there are some things you can do to help me get the, you know, the right amount of credit in the math, in the equation, then it might be possible. That's exactly it. And there are other ways as well. I mean, in, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but um, if, if the, we just want to make sure that the practice isn't bleeding out our doctor. Yeah. So if, if, if a practice does at least break even, 
then we're going to try to get creative to find ways to make it work for you. Okay. Um, these loans perform and uh, we want to, you know, we're in the business to do loans. So if it's over a break even and, and maybe it's a smaller practice that you can carry on three or four days a week and you can work one day a week outside, then we're going to go ahead and help you calculate that income that you're going to be earning outside to get us over that 1.25 to one hump. Where we have zero gray area is if the practice is not breaking even. Because yeah. going back to what I just said, we we don't want somebody working hard outside the practice uh, or relying on spousal income to try to keep a practice afloat. It's a recipe for disaster. Got it. You're using the phrase break even. Is that is that synonymous with 1.25 over one? Is that what you mean? No, it would be synonymous to one to one. One to one. Okay. Got it. Correct. Sorry about that. No, no, that's okay. And so I also heard that all of those cupcakes I sent to the provide underwriters really didn't help me very much with my <laughs> No, it helps. They're human they're human beings, so it's all psychological. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the math real fast. I want to talk about the numerator and the denominator, what actually goes into those. And what I will say is, guys listening, we're just touching on this, right? Um, you want to get deep into the weeds. Call Morgan, make, you know, get in your application and he'll talk you through the numbers for your specific deal. But Morgan, let's talk about the numerator first. What goes on the top line of this equation? So what's in the, we're hoping 1.25 or more at the, on the top end of this equation, what's in the number? Yeah. So it's, it's the total ownership compensation that that practice is putting off after all overhead expenses are paid. Okay. So it's in the 1.25 to one ratio. This is the 1.25. So going back to my example earlier, this is the $125,000 of income flowing into the uh, potential buyer's household after all of the business expenses. This is the money the practice makes before you pay the owner. No, this is, this is the ownership compensation that the owner is able to pull uh, out of the practice after all expenses. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So walk me through a little more detail. So um, how, how would you calculate that number? Yeah. So we're, we're basically going to look at, at, at the various ways that a practice has is able to pay themselves. A practice owner is able to pay themselves. So mm-hmm. um, usually what we see is, you know, there's a net bottom line. Um, a lot of tax strategies have you want to get that number down to zero as much as possible. So you're not paying taxes on it. Yep. Um, but you would take net income, uh, from the practice or net bottom line income, plus any ownership distributions, uh, plus any W2 income, uh, that might be being paid to family members, um, specific ad backs such as equipment depreciation, um, and basically try to get to that number of the income that we can count on that the owner is going to make once they step into that practice as the owner and take over for the seller. Yeah. The way I describe this to, to doctors more, and I'd be curious if you've got feedback for me, but I describe this as, you know, after you pay the necessary uh, expenses of the practice, paying the staff, paying the lab bill, paying rent, you know, you got to pay your accountant, the merchant services contract, the bank, right? After all of the quote unquote necessary expenses to just keep the doors open and, and see patients, the rest of it, paying yourself, going to Hawaii for CE trips, um, you know, running your cell phones through the practice, all that stuff is good. It's tax strategies. You're saying you're going to you're going to count that as owner compensation, the depreciation, all of those. You're calling them ad backs and I'm calling them tax strategies. And we're saying the same thing, right? Exactly. Yes. Yep. And and it is a little bit of a fine line there as well. You know, as, as I kind of say, you, you sellers 
oftentimes want to kind of have their cake and eat it too. They want to run a ton of expenses yeah. through and, and even miscategorize them sometimes. <laughs> and then the broker gets to us and they want to add everything back. The underwriter is going to draw a line somewhere. Yeah. Um, you can't avoid paying taxes for years uh, on, on a lot of things and then expect a, a lender to consider that pure cash flow. So there are a very specific list of acceptable addbacks like mm -hmm. vehicles, uh, entertainment, like you pointed out, uh, depreciation to equipment. So all of those things are automatically uh, going to be added back. And if there's any sort of gray area, we'll get details from the seller and the broker and and basically go to the underwriter and, and try to use utilize those to get us over the hump, kind of alluding back to what you were saying on those borderline deals. That's where we might be able to get creative if we feel good about the overall kind of global situation of the practice opportunity. That makes sense. Okay, the two I hear the most common, and I actually don't hear the first one all that much, but when I do, it's usually a big number. The first is the seller will say, well, you know, I've had, um, you know, I collected, the tax return says 700, but I actually took $100,000 in cash payments that you don't see there. Uh, so we're <laughs> going to value the business on a 800 and not 700. And what, what you're saying, is, or the other scenario is in, on the expenses, right? Well, I know that my tax return says that I had $60,000 last year in dental supplies, but really that was a new roof on my house. And the, the real dental supply number was $30,000. You're saying, hey, listen, if you reported it to the IRS, whether or not you're being truthful with us, we're not going to let you count it. You can't have your cake and eat it too. That's what you mean by that. Bingo. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly okay. it. Okay. All right. So that's the numerator. Let's talk about the denominator. This is the interesting part. And, and to me, this is where the light bulb went on, on why some dentists will get a loan on one practice. And then another dentist will not get a loan on the exact same practice. All right. So what, what goes into the denominator, the one on the one, two, five? Yeah. The den denominator is basically the buyer's total debt. Okay. Um, so in that one, 1 1.25 over one, uh, that is the one. Um, yeah, just debt. Okay. So, uh, mortgage payment, maybe rent, something like that. Does, is there a difference between if I own a house or if I'm renting? None whatsoever. What kind what it comes down to is the total payment. So in our world, if you have a $2,000 a month rent payment, that is ex treated exactly the same as having a $2,000 a month mortgage payment, wow. except for the fact that we do with mortgages have to calculate and include the taxes and insurance as well. Okay. So it'd be yep. all an expense. And, and so maybe this is very subtle, but you said debt. What I hear you saying is more of financial obligations, right? I, it, rent isn't necessarily a debt, but I got to I got to pay rent. No, that's that's a good point. Good clarification. Um, it's your total expenses. OK. Yep. All right. Um, student loans goes into that, I imagine. Absolutely. OK. And, and give me a strategy. Where do you I got to imagine this swings deals one way or the other often like. Where do you see buyers either doing it well or making mistakes with student loans specifically? Well, um, one mistake that, that I see folks make is, is you just got to learn how to play the game. Um, it's really counterintuitive. Most people, you know, instinctually want to get out of debt as quickly as possible. But as we've touched on, you know, borrower liquidity is as important as ever and is as important as any factor in getting securing a, a loan approval. So, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of buyers, unless for some reason you have access to a lot of cash or maybe you're making a, a really large amount of money as an associate, um, kind of have to play the game and, and get on the in income based repayment program. And, and that can be painful to watch your balances grow mm -hmm. and negatively amortize. 
But you need to do that in order to put the cash away, because if you show up to a bank and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm debt free. I've got no student loan debt. But oh, wait, I only have 10 grand saved. You know, we're going to say great job. Now you're going to be able to be in a position to save sooner. But at the end of the day, you know, we still need you to have the necessary, you know, five to seven percent liquidity that we've discussed on previous episodes. Call us in six so, months. Yeah. Got to play, got to play that game, put some, ca- put some cash away and not accelerate those payments if you're not going to have the liquidity needed to qualify for the practice that you want. Yeah. This is a subtle point, right? So my financial, my inner financial planner, right? My CFP inside of me is going, holy cow, you're telling me not to pay down debt. You're telling me to go on income-based repayment be- because that keeps my payments low. And the calculation in this debt service coverage ratio is based on my payments, not necessarily my total student loan balance, but it's how much my monthly payments are. Now, those two things are correlated, but one person with 500 grand in student loans might have $50,000 a year in student loan payments, and another borrower with the same $500,000 in student loan payments, uh, balance, excuse me, $500,000 balance, might only have $15,000 a year in student loan payments. And you're saying the $15,000 a year doctor is going to be in better shape for this calculation. Well, let me kind of back up a little bit. So I was more alluding to the fact that they need to go on the IBR to be able to save more cash. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, how we calculate the IBR once we get into credit underwriting is a little bit different um, because the IBR is all based on the income that you're earning. And every year when you file tax returns, you've got to basically, you know, reset and recalibrate your income, your payment with the, with your student loan provider. So for us, we want to protect, you know, not only, you know, the client, but also our investment as well. And we understand that, you know, if you're, let's say you're on the income-based repayment program and you've only been making 150 grand a year and your payment's extremely low, but you're getting ready to buy a million dollar practice. Um, we want to make sure that we protect you. And, and, and we, we, you know, the income-based repayment program is basically just a, a ratio, a calculation. Yeah. So gotcha. we're going to look at the cash flow that that practice is putting off and the income that you're going to be earning in that practice. And then we're going to basically calculate that equation to, to kind of place a monthly payment that we're going to utilize for your student loan debt when we cash flow that practice for okay. you. Yep. That makes sense. All right. Um, bottom line on student loans is maybe talk with Morgan, right? You know, this is my situation. This is what I'm looking at. You know, this is what I'm thinking about doing. I'm a year away from buying a practice, but you know, what do you think about this for my student loans? And you're going to tell them, like you're, you, you're going to tell them from the purpose, excuse me, from the perspective of the bank, what to do, but let's finish talking about the denominator. Um, what else goes in there? I, I got to think if we're talking financial obligations, uh, taxes, taxes has got to be in there, right? Correct. Ca- taxes are pretty easy to calculate just based on the historical cash flow and the historical tax returns that we ca- that we gather from the seller for the underwriting. It's kind of what will the taxes be once you own this practice? Okay. Got exactly. it. Mm-hmm. Um, cost of living has got to be in there too, right? Yeah. And so this is, this is one that people don't really understand. Um, and so I'm glad that, that you just brought that up because, you know, we have, we all have expenses above and beyond what shows up on a credit report, right? Yeah. Whether it's, you know, uh, life insurance, whether it's your cell phone bill, whether it's, you know, there's all kinds of expenses out there. So underwriters uh, and and lenders uh, in general are going to do a catch-all kind of number, you know, per buyer and then also per dependent. Mm. So typically uh, the number that uh, we assign for that catch-all is going to be $35,000 for the year. 
mm. of expenses. And that has to capture meals, entertainment, everything. Yeah. Um, and then for each dependent that's reported on a, on a, um, on a tax return, it's going to be an additional $7,500 annually. So let's say you've got, you know, two kiddos and, and, uh, yourself, you're going to have $35,000 plus $15,000. That's $50,000 annually right there. That's not showing up on a credit report that we're going to hit your cash flow for. Yep. Got it. So the, uh, maybe if my spouse is working, that might help me, but if I'm a single doc, no doctors, that's going to, I'm going to look better than, um, a married doctor whose spouse is not working with three, four kids. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. All right, Morgan, man, this is good stuff. Um, again, if you are listening while you're doing something else and you want to see how this looks visually head to the show notes, I've got a, a little PDF. It's you know free of charge. It's, it's yours for the taking, grab the PDF so that you can be a little more informed and, and really understand how these bank calculations go. Morgan, can't thank you enough. This is really good stuff. Thanks for the, uh, the help here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. Okay. We'll talk to you on the next two episodes. Thank you. Thank you.